Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back to the Lantern Rouge Cycling Podcast with Benji Nyson. This is the Giro d'Italia Stage 18 and the Vuelta Espana Stage 3 recap brought to you by our partner, Lacole. Nicole produced performance road cycling apparel, and that was shown in the well in the Giro stage, particularly today. We'll talk about the cold descent off the back of the Stelvio when we get into it in the middle of the pod. But if you want to check out any of Lacole's kit, you can see them at www.lacole.cc, and that's exactly the same caliber of kit that the Bahrain and the Claren guys were wearing in the Giro today. If you want to enter as well to get yourself 15% off the code LRGiro15 at checkout as well. The Giro is continuing that code um, and then might have a new one afterwards, but we don't know yet. But yeah, LRGiro15 at checkout for 15% off. But this Giro stage 18 was the one we've been waiting for from Pinzolo to Laghi di Cancano. It obviously had the Stelvio climb smack bang in the middle of it, not the last climb of the day though, 208 kilometer stage, starts off 14.2 k's, 5.8% out the door, out the neutral zone, then they had the Castrin climb, 8.6 k's at 8.9%, 9%, these are all a lot of calories being burned in the first third of this stage, then a long valley flat section before the Stelvio, 25 k's at 7.5%, the Chima coffee climb, in this year's Giro, meaning it goes to the highest point in the race, up to 2,750 metres altitude, so proper high altitude climb, long, cold descent with many a hairpin down to Isolakia Val di Dentro, where there was a second intermediate sprint just before the last climb, so bonus seconds, remember, are available in the Giro, the second intermediate sprint of the day, not sprint points. Then they had the final last Final climb of the day, mount a hilltop finish, the Torre di Fraele, 9Ks at 6.8%. A brutal stage, 5,500 metres of climbing. We thought a break was doomed just because the best climbers were going to rise to the top here. But there was some interesting breakaway action, Benji, because, and we love to see people fighting over different jerseys in the Grand Tours. Yes, the KOM jersey was still up for grabs. We had Guerrero be the leader of that before the stage started, 50 points ahead of Visconti, but Visconti didn't start the stage. He actually had an injury for a few days now, and it's surprising how long he held on with that injury, but yeah, he couldn't do it anymore, and since he was behind already, I think that's what really made the decision of not letting him start today. So Guerrero was the sole rider at the top of that ranking with about 100 points over anybody else, so that's quite crazy for him. And he missed the initial breakaway. There were the likes of Filippo Ganna, Eddie Hind, but also a Ben O'Connor. And on the first climb, they clearly weren't happy that Guerrero missed that breakaway because Evadication first started basing in the peloton to try and make sure that Guerrero could, at the end of the initial climb, jump towards the breakaway. And 
he did exactly that. E-Evacation first based until the gap was around 37-ish seconds. And then Guerrero tried to bridge across, and he did that relatively quickly. And once again, today, he went for the K1 points, and he took the majority of it. He did have trouble on the Stelvio today. The other breakaway contenders were clearly a bit better than him on that ascension, but the first two, he did take the majority of the points. The person that was the strongest in the breakaway, I won't cover you with all the details of what happened in the breakaway, because at the end of the stage, they didn't really come into play too much outside of Ben O'Connor, who launched his attack once again, third time in a row in the breakaway, second two stages ago. Yesterday, the winner on Madonna di Campiglio, and today he attacked again from that group away. And he kept on pedaling, and he was the sole breakaway rider up front once the GC action started happening on the Paso dello Stelvio. Before I throw it to you, Lantern, I'll remind everybody of how the GC looked before this stage so that we can kind of go through it and see which places switched after the stage. Before the stage started, Joao Almeida was leader at this Giro, and there was 17 seconds ahead of Wilco Calderon, the first Sunweb rider. The second Sunweb rider was third on 2 minutes 58, Jai Hendley, then Tao Gegenhardt on the fourth spot, 2 minutes 59 back, Bilbo Bao on 3 minutes 12, and the rest just kept on going at around 3 minutes and 4 minutes behind there. So the majority of expectations were for us, first of all, Sunweb trying to drop Almeida, Gegenhardt trying to make trouble towards Sunweb, and Fulsang potentially trying to hit his way back into top 10 after his mechanical and his bad days in the last week. So those were the real differences we expected. And me personally, as a Nibali stan, I was hoping that he'd have the best day of his last three years and actually be able to do something here. But if that turned out, well, I'll let you talk about it. So as Benji said, first order priority for Sunweb was dropping Almeida. So that is why we saw Sunweb pacing hard into the base of the Stelvio. We saw Nico Dens driving it in that valley, keeping the pace high. It was strung out and they had their whole team in good position. Once again, it was Hamilton lighting it up from the base, setting a very, very hard pace. I haven't seen the numbers yet, but it started. they started shredding the group really, really quickly. It was like, it was Skytrain-esque. Um, I know Nibali said that, and I kind of laughed at it the other day. He, he said it felt like the Skytrain on Piancavallo, but it looked, it was the same as the Skytrain, basically. The it went from a full peloton to like 10 riders with Hamilton pulling. And yeah, the next moment, I think it might have been someone else. No, sorry, I misplaced one of the Sunweb guys because Henley didn't pull. It was initially Chad Hager, I think, Benji pulling, and then it was Hamilton pulling. So Hager, uh, Hager did a lot of good work uh, for Sunweb, and then Hamilton pulled. By the time he pulled, it was a very, very select group too. But then Ineos... I think, wanted to take up the pace too. So they, before Almeida was even dropped, I think, they were, they started pacing with Rowan Dennis and they absolutely shredded this climb. And it might have been another rider uh, before Dennis, I think, for Ineos pacing as well. But the main domestique for them today, and probably the MVP today, was Rowan Dennis and they destroyed and splintered the whole GC group. We saw Pozzavivo, who was the first man, starting to come off the back a little bit, moving back. And then I saw him, and we had like, it seemed like 15Ks left in the climb. This is early in this climb. It's an hour and five minute, hour and 10 minute climb. And if you're 5Ks, 8Ks in getting dropped, it's bad news for you. 
uh, and that was what was happening. Positive Evo went. Then Nibali got shot out the back door, I think, maybe at the same time or around the same time as Almeida. But Almeida rides really, really smart for a guy who we still don't think of as like a pure climber, but I think he he knows when he's at the limit. He knows he's about to get dropped. He dropped himself, and then he works as a diesel, it seems, just trying to ride at his limit and do the best he can at that limit rather than going over it and then completely blowing up. So that's what Almeida did once again today, and he did a really good job. But, yeah, he got dropped very early, and we knew with Ineos and Sunweb working in tandem, it was not looking particularly bright for his GC prospects. But then, so then Fulsang was dropped, Bill Bauer was dropped, Conrad, Micah, Pernsteiner, Masnada, everyone's dropped by Dennis' furious pace, setting this just like constant in-the-saddle grinding pace on the Stelvio before you've really hit altitude yet. And it's just Dennis, Kelderman for Sunweb, and Hindley and Gagan Hart. So obviously on GC, you had... Kelderman in front of those two. You had Hindley now with with Almeida gone. We're talking virtual GC now on the road. Kelderman first and then Hindley and Gagenhart two and two minutes behind, two and a half minutes behind him. But then it became quickly apparent. We saw this on Piancavallo. We saw signs of this, I thought, on Etna, but particularly on Piancavallo, that Hindley is a much stronger climber than Wilco Kelderman. And first Kelderman got distanced by Dennis Pace. I think even Gagan Hart was struggling to make to, to cover Dennis Wheel with his surges out of some of the hairpins. But then once, Al- once what Kelderman got back the first time, it was the second time he got dropped and he the elastic was snapped. He was gone. And this has been quite controversial on Twitter, Benji. Why don't you run through the rationale or what was going through the Sunweb DS head when they've got Hindley, second on GC, two minute and a half minutes ahead of Kelderm, uh, behind Kelderman, sitting on Gagan Hart, who's two seconds behind him, and Dennis pacing the both of them. What is the rationale for keeping Hindley there versus dropping him back to pull Wilco Kelderman? And this is halfway through the Stelvio, by the way, not just near the top. There's quite a bit of rationale in multiple options here. So you've got Hindley in the wheel of Tau Gagan Hart and Dennis. You've got Wilco Kelderman off the back. And we see that Kelderman kept dropping, but he kept the gap at about 30 to 45 seconds for a bit. As a DS, you've got the decision to make. Are you keeping Hindley in that front group, or are you pulling him back? He's three minutes behind in GC to try and help out Kelderman. Now, this is halfway to Stelvio. If you pull Hindley back to Kelderman, he won't magically revive Kelderman. He'll be able to keep him at somewhat of a distance, but... If you have Dennis and Gegenhardt coming to the top alone and Hindley and Kelderman in the second group on about a minute, I guess, a minute and a half then, because I think the difference was around a good 45, 50 seconds, right? When and once they cross yes. the top. So you would have two of Ineos at the front, you would have the two of Sunweb behind. But thinking about that, Dennis looks to be a relatively mediocre descender. Hindley seems to be pretty good at trying to follow Gagan Hart. So you'd have a basic 1v1 versus those two because Kelderman was on the same level as Gagan Hart in descending. So I don't think that there would have been much change on that descent. 
What is important, though, is you've got a bit of a, a plateau section after the climb, and that's a 5.1, or it was 4.9 kilo in a flat section before we start the final ascension of the day, the Torre di Fraile. Now, all that plateau section, having a helper is important, but the thing is, Calimon is behind at that point. Dennis is with Tauergegenhardt, one of the best time trialists in the world. Gegenhardt is going to be better on the flat than Hindley is, so I don't think it would have helped very much to have Hindley in that second group for Kelderman. Maybe it would have been able to save some energy for Kelderman, but I don't think that would have brought him much closer than what Kelderman was at when he started the final climb. So having Hindley back would probably not help too much. And additionally, you'd be throwing away any chances for Hindley to have a good GC because Hindley is one of the two best climbers in this race. And we knew that from Piancavallo. And we definitely saw that today. He was able to follow the front tree. So pulling Hindley back to help Alcalderman is totally out of the question for me personally. Now, I want to throw it to you first, but then there's another topic about this, uh, this cooperation and whether Hindley should have attacked that we got to go to afterwards. Okay, I'll ask you this question. Everyone, a lot of people on Twitter, Dutch people on Twitter saying, oh, well, if Hindley had gone back, he would have helped Kelderman at least another 30 seconds. At the moment that Kelderman drops halfway on the Stelvio, he's dropping, Dennis is pacing. Dennis pacing, by the way, not Gagan Hart. When Kelderman drops there, what's the over-under on what, how much time you thought Kelderman would lose today? I would say the average person thought, ooh, He's going to lose a lot of time. He's cracking badly. So if Sunweb dropped, and that, so 2020 hindsight is saying, oh, well, he would have helped Kelderman 30 seconds. It would have been helped a lot. At that moment, if you drop Hindley back, you're risking Kelderman completely cracking, not losing like five minutes on GC or four minutes on GC like Almeida did. And you've also shattered Himley's chances, who is second in the virtual classific general classification. So you would have looked like complete idiots who would have thrown away any chance at the jersey. So it's like it's out of the question that you drop Hindley back for Kelderman, mainly because everyone climbed at their own pace, really. Like it's Hindley would have been trying to go faster. I'm not sure. Like he can't attach a tow rope to the back of his bike during <laughs> during the Stelvio. Um, and I think Kelderman just had to ride his own race. And the better option, given that Hindley is clearly the stronger of the two at this point in the race in the mountains, and we're getting into this now, is where he's marking Gagenhart, marking Dennis. By the way, him marking Gagenhart and Dennis slowed them down. They were stuffing around on the descent. Gagenhart was not relaying with Dennis at all because he was saving energy because he was worried about Hindley. That's a theme that will carry through to the last climb. If it was just Gagenhart and Dennis, as Benji mentioned, Benji mentioned on that flat plateau section, they would have been relaying, and that would have been a damn sight quicker than Hindley and Kelderman relaying behind them. So I feel like Hindley was actually a little bit of an anchor as well on Dennis and Gagenhart. And that carried through to the climb, Benji, where what was your read on Gagan Hart going into the climb? Dennis blows up, because justifiably, I say again, MVP for the day, first Australian to ever take the Chima copy on top of in the Giro d'Italia <laughs> when he crossed the Stelvio first, Rowan Dennis. An unbelievable performance from him, um, and it makes sense numbers-wise. He's a one-hour TT guy. 
still goes a one-hour effort, but it's up to altitude. So just a really special performance from Rowan Dennis. So my hat's off to him. But he pulls off, base of the last climb, 9Ks, like what is it, 8% or something, not really up to high altitude, up to about 1,900. And they've got Kelderman about a minute behind, a minute 20 behind actually because Dennis has put 30 seconds into him. What was your read on Gagan Hart there, Benji? Because he, he seemed agitated to me in his the way he was interacting with Hindley. Yes, at the start of the climb, when he launched away from Dennis and had Hindley in his wheel, obviously Hindley was going to sit in his wheel for quite a bit. And we'll talk about whether he should attack or not in a second, but Gagan Hart, every so on, every few meters, every few hundred of meters, he looked at Hindley and he was like talking to him. And I'm not sure why he was talking to him. You can't expect Hindley to start pacing with you because Kellerman is clearly his teammate that is behind and is trying to lose a limited amount of time to you too. So I feel that Gegenhard was trying to, it's like that elbow. Uh, if you, for example, are in a breakaway and you're at the front and you flick your elbow and you get annoyed by it, that's because you can't keep on pacing. And Gegenhard had to do this final climb fully alone, obviously. Hindley in his wheel, super annoyed by it. I think that he was slightly tired out. And I think that's the reason that he kept trying to get Hindley on board. But there's no real option to have that happen. If Hindley is going to help you, he's going to try and drop you. That's the only thing that he's going to try and do there. And that's something that I personally think that he should have done. But yeah, we'll talk about that in a second once again. What I feel is that Gagan Hart potentially also didn't have real experience in this place in a Grand Tour before. And that might have also been a reason that he was being so agitated and being a bit oddly behaving on the last climb. But what do you think? Is it the tiredness? Is it the inexperience? Is it just the fact that he was trying to get some help while trying to do his best or anything else? I think initially he was trying to be smart and bait Hindley, who's a young guy, into making a mistake and pulling, which I think smart to do that. But then the fifth and the sixth time he tried to do it, I was like, it was clear to me that he was this was actually born out of frustration and the way his shoulders were moving and the way he particularly looked behind Dennis on Stelvio and the way that he was not, he was actually losing time, I thought, to Kelderman for a little bit now. You can't really trust the Italian time gaps with your life. But it was clear that he wasn't extending that gap out to Kelderman. And when you looked back and the camera went back to Kelderman, you saw that he was not going at a big rate of knots. He was struggling um, and the team car went up to him just before the final climb and handed him a bid on. They didn't give him a gel and then they drove off back to Hindley and he was pissed. He was waving his hand, angry at them about something. I'm not sure why exactly. And he just looked, he was kind of soft pedaling on the false flat descent parts and we forgot to mention Benji. I can't believe we forgot to mention it. Maybe it was because at the top of Stelvio when everyone was putting on their jackets for the for the wet descent, <laughs> the two Sunweb guys couldn't put on their fucking jackets properly. Jai Hindley particularly he had it over his left hand, left arm. He'd already put his heavy-duty gloves on, I think, and he couldn't get the jacket on, and he nearly crashed when he took his hands off the bars trying to put it on. He gets it over his shoulders, and then he couldn't do the zip-up. So the entirety of the descent, Hindley's got this parachute on. He's got his chest exposed, and he's being attacked by Gagenhart and Tennis. But same thing happened with Kelderman. He couldn't do up his jacket. So maybe 
that affected the two of them and they didn't feel as good as they would have on the final climb, particularly Kelderman didn't feel as good. Um, but regardless, as I said, he didn't, he wasn't losing much time to Gagenhart. So I was like, okay, Gagenhart's not feeling great. I think Hindley's probably a better climber than him and Hindley's been sitting in the wheels. So given that Gagenhart put a minute and 30 into Hindley on the time trial, Hindley has to gain more than just bonus seconds on Gagenhart. And people, a lot of people said, oh, well, he can't attack because that would make, that would uh, mean that Gagenhart put more time into Wilco Kelderman. But do you think that's true, Benji? Or like, what do you think would have happened if he'd attacked? Um, purely speculation, of course, but when should he have attacked? Should he have attacked at all? Would it have helped Kelderman or hurt his chances? Or do you think he was too tired to attack? I don't think he was too tired to attack. And he had quite a sprint at the end to show that as well. But I think attacking on the Stelvio itself would have been too early. I think that right there you've got Dennis and you've got Gegenhardt. There's a bit of a double situation. If you attack there, then you might have the option of dropping Dennis and having only Gegenhardt with you. And if you do that, you put Dennis out of contention for helping on the flat section at the bottom because Dennis was clearly not a, the best descender. But thinking about that, obviously that's in hindsight because you can't expect Dennis to be a mediocre descender. I, I expected him to be a great descender, personally. And he looked to be one of the weaker ones in that front tree. So looking back, he could have potentially attacked to drop Dennis from those three if he had the ability to do so. Because then I think Kelderman would have had a better option of coming back. But then again, Dennis wouldn't just drop and disappear. He was able to come over the top at a decent mark. Well, he he was with them. And if they attacked, he would have probably been able to cross the top in a decent margin of the two. Now, looking at that, that is something that we're saying in hindsight. I don't think that it's a good idea to attack from those two guys on that climb. because. Dennis is probably going to be the one that counters you instead of Gegenhard and tries to close it down again before Gegenhard responds. That's the logical way that Ineos trains work, but obviously on high altitude, the trains really don't, don't do what they're supposed to, it seems, because the Sunweb train on high altitude had some trouble as well. If we look at the final ascension, should Hindley have attacked there? I believe he should have. We see that Kelderman is on minute 50 at that point at the start of the ascension there minute 40, minute 50, somewhere around there. We see that all the rest is basically gone and that Kelderman is being closed down by Bilbao and Fulsang who are sitting behind him in the group. And firstly, I think that if someone's one minute 40 behind, they can lose two minutes 30. Then I would start thinking about attacking because you've got the upcoming stages to come, a time trial that's beneficial for Kelderman, but... You've also got stage 20 on which the Col Daniel was taken out and we've got three times Sestriere instead, the final ascension that was supposed to be in that stage. So that stage got severely easier, but it's not an easy mountain stage still. It's relatively easy. So if Ineos pulls it out and just really pushes on that ascension, then with the Kelderman of today, they're going to drop Kelderman and he's going to lose more time. But yeah, I feel like Hindley would have had a better option attacking, but when that's a really difficult issue, maybe with like 2k to go, 1.5k to go on the climbing section, because then you've got 
You don't even need to attack fully. If you see that you attack relatively fully and you see that Gegenhard doesn't twitch at all, just put yourself on the wheel again. But if you see that he's so agitated, Gegenhard on that climb, I see it as a weakness like you do. Then you try and then you try and drop him. And you can try it once, and if it works, it works. If it doesn't work, then you can sit in his wheel again and do what you did today. But I think that Hindley should have attacked on the last climb. And that's where my real question comes in. Is this a Hindley decision? Is this a DS decision? Because in the interviews after the stage, it's apparently a Hindley decision. Really? Apparently, apparently Hindley was supposed to wait on Wilco Kelderman, and he didn't. And Kelderman was also angry at it. Well, who yeah. said that he was supposed to wait? Hindley said Kelderman. in the interview himself that going alone was not the plan and that he he didn't say literally that uh, I need to find the real quote before I say something stupid. Yeah, so I don't know. I don't know if that quote in. meant that he was not supposed to go solo, or, like not supposed to go solo. I just think that it wasn't their like their plan that they drew up in the day. I think if if he got the call over the if the DS told him to to sit up, he would have, and they obviously didn't. But what they didn't do is remind him of the intermediate sprint where he lost bonus seconds to Tao Gaganart, who just rolled over, and Hinley looked like he forgot about it, and they obviously didn't tell him to attack in the finale. So I just, I can't believe it, honestly. I mean, there's two sides to this, right? Two, there's two ways of looking at it. From Hinley's eyes, from his personal selfish perspective, if you want to win the fucking Giro, you have to attack, okay? If you want to be, just think about what would Lance do? What would Contador do? What would Froome do? What would Carapaz do? You have to attack. And... If you have the best legs, if you see weakness in Gagenhart, and we saw that from 6Ks to 4Ks to go in the last climb, just test him. One attack, see what happens. Maybe if you don't feel so good during the attack and he closes you easily, fine, sit back on, okay? But you have to try. Maybe you glide away easily and you immediately see cracks and weakness in him. Um, so he had to try because he has to gain more than this 15-second buffer that he has right now because going into the TT, if Hindley has a 15-second buffer, then Gagenhardt is going to gain that time on him. Um, and if they drop Kelderman, if Ineos ride really hard on Sestria, drop Kelderman, Hindley doesn't gain any time on Sestria stages or the rest of the stages, and then he has that 15-second gap, Ineos with Gagenhardt will win the Giro. So... I know this is all sounding like, oh, you have, this is how can you quick think like this? Think this quickly on the road, but it is happening quickly, but it also isn't right. There is a long time on these climbs. You have five minutes, six minutes to think about this and plan this and think, okay, well, Gaganar's not going gained any time on Kelderman, and the gap he, Kelderman's still in Maglia Rosa, and also what's the downside? If if uh, Hindley attacks and Kel and Gagenhardt bridges across to him, and then they slow down a bit. I guarantee if Hindley attacked and Gagenhardt bridged to him, it would have slowed down because Gagenhardt would have just, he wouldn't have just rolled over and kept pacing at threshold again. So the notion that if Hindley attacks, it will somehow make the two of Hindley and Gagenhardt go quicker is incorrect. The irregular pace of an attack and stop, attack and stop, as we see when a, a chase group is trying to catch a, a breakaway rider, we saw it in Tour of Flanders. One rider, Chantal Vandenbroek, riding at her threshold on her own steadily is a lot quicker than seven riders attacking and stopping, attacking and stopping. 
it would have actually helped Kelderman, I think, as well, him the attacking and seeing what Gagenhart would have done, even if he brought it back. And maybe he gets a gap and then he actually gains some more time. Um, but he, yeah, I think they, they did make a big mistake here, Sunweb. Uh, they made a big mistake not ensuring that Hindley tried to gain more time and there was no real downside to it in my view because I saw cracks in Gagenhart. Now, going to the finale, which I don't think we've explained in full, Gagenhart paces, Hindley's sitting on him. He's He's been in the drops. He gets in the drops at three Ks to go, doesn't attack, sits on Gagenhart all day, sitting on him. I think Gagenhart was like one second ahead of him on virtual GC because of the bonus intermediate sprint seconds. They get to the finale and Gagenhart opens up his sprint with about 250. Hindley's still sitting on him. Hindley, take, Hindley tries his best to butcher the sprint. He takes the worst fucking line I've ever seen, like wide <laughs> around the corner. It was, I was worried. Um, and that's what people were saying. Oh, he only barely beat Gagenhart in the sprint. Um, and then he came around Gagenhart in the end and won pretty comfortably by just over a bike length. It's like he only just won by that much because he took the worst lines and because Gagenhart's a way better finisher than him. And just because he only gone by a bike length there, I don't think that means necessarily that he wouldn't have been able to distance Gagenhart when they're doing – they've just finished Delvio. They're halfway through the last climb with six Ks to go. I think that's a whole different kettle of fish than a sprint uh, at the end. So do you reckon this will come back to bite them, Benji, come back to bite some of them? Because I think it will. I think I think uh, Ineos should be favourites to win this to win this year. I just see there's no way Kelderman's not dropping on, on Sestriere. Yeah, I've got the same opinion. Sestriere is not a hard climb, but doing it three times in a row is still relatively rough. And yeah, indeed. And definitely at the end of a Grand Tour, that certainly doesn't help either. The day before a pretty rough time trial. Day after, sorry. <laughs> Obviously. Um, so it's probably going to come back to bite. And we obviously don't know for certain. We, we can't predict the future so brightly but at the moment we've got a situation in gc where kellerman is in the maglia rossa he's got 12 seconds on his teammate jai hindley and 15 seconds on gegenhard we know that gegenhard's a better time trialist than hindley from that second itt where gegenhard gained one minute 15 on hindley the question then is did he save energy in that time trial hindley or did he go for GC? I would say that he didn't save any energy and went for GC because he was on like a minute and 15 seconds. That's an argument that someone posted to me, so I wanted to debunk it on the podcast itself. Then we know that Kelderman's a better cheater of them, but he's got a stick on the wheel. And I think that Jai Hindley today made sure that he didn't gain enough time on Gegenhardt to prevent being passed in the time trial himself. And I think Kelderman or whoever made the decision that they leave Kelderman behind, obviously that's a good decision. We spoke about it. The fact that he is only 12 seconds or 15 seconds ahead of Gegenhardt is obviously going to be a really hard thing to hold. And I think he can lose up to maybe 45 seconds on Sister to to become a troublesome. I think he can try and take back 30 seconds on Gegenhardt on a very good day in that time trial, but it's still going to be a pretty rough and difficult one to do. So he's not a lost Kelderman. He He's not a horrendous climber. We know that. Today was the queen stage, so he has to lose still a, a proper margin for Gegenhard to come into Maglia Rosa after stage 21. But I do believe that Kelderman's going to crack on stage 20, and if he does, then they're going to regret 
decisions they made today, potentially in hindsight. But if we can see it during the stage, then Adidas should be able to see it as well. And like you said, the decisions by Adidas can obviously be measured by the fact that they forget about an intermediate sprint that gives seconds. And that's what really bugged me today. That's not even the big decisions, just that tiny detail shows that they're not having everything under control and that that just sucks. And it's clear that Kelderman is not feeling so well after today's stage because, like I mentioned a bit earlier, after the stage, he blatantly said Try Hindley should have waited. And during the stage, he was throwing a hand at the car of Sunweb when the car went to actually provision bottles and so forth to Hindley. So it, it he clearly no wasn't sense, happy Benji. about the situation. Yeah, I agree. It makes no we sense. We spoke but... about this. No, but we spoke about this yesterday on the preview on the preview of today's stage. We said exactly what would happen today. We were like, Ineos going to attack. Kelderman probably dropped, and I'm pretty sure. Did we pick Hindley for the stage? Oh. You picked Hindley. I picked Gegenhardt. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. So we were like, this is what's going to happen. So how does Sunweb, in the, how do you, if it's obvious to us and where I'm sitting in Australia watching at 2 a.m. and I don't even, I'm not even with the riders, how is Sunweb not before the stage sitting down in the war room saying, hey, guys, this is the plan of action. If, if X scenario happens, this is how we're going to play. If Y scenario happens, this is what's going to happen. Um, just like on stage three with Aetna, the minute Dennis, uh, the minute, Thomas dropped. They kept Gagan Hart. They didn't drop Gagan Hart back in the off. They had. They went to Plan B straight away on the road. Um, so how I don't know how this was a surprise to anybody. This should have been the plan or spoken about already. And can I say as well, why the fuck are people making decisions whilst also driving a vehicle? Like, is this the only sport in the world where people are watching on a? Yeah. Eight-inch television without their computer, without Twitter, without being able to watch multiple angles and replay, and they're watching and trying to make decisions that it makes no fucking sense to me. And in any other sport, like it's just it's ludicrous. You look at NBA; they got like six guys, six guys sitting behind the coach, people running numbers and and etc. Um, all uh, cricket and even NRL; they got guys are sitting up in the stands like. Is there some cycling reason, Benji, that I don't understand, that there's a reason why that's the case? I think it's just blatant old tradition, and it really sucks because we also see that the driver is the person that gives the bottles to riders most of the time, but we know that that's not supposed to happen. It's like being on the phone while you're driving. I, I find that itself already really annoying to see, but the fact that the decisions are being made by two people in those cars, to me, are not a good thing. I'm not sure. I, I'm not sure whether, for example, Ineos has a team behind the scenes that is doing stuff in the stage itself, looking at numbers and figuring out stuff behind the scenes to then deliver it to the DS who makes a decision. But that would be a better thing. Like in Formula One, you've got those HQs by the teams, something like that in cycling, and you might have <laughs> a pretty cool thing. <laughs> Imagine if there was a car in Formula One with the, <laughs> with the engineers in it, just following the Formula One car, like talking to them instead of being an HQ. Imagine, yeah, that'd, be, sorry. that'd be brilliant. <laughs> Formula One's a good point. We're spending too long on this stage nineteen preview. From, wait, 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 oh, sorry, wait, 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 wait. I've sorry, got something more. Masnada. Oh my god! <laughs> what happened there? Like Almeida dropped and. 
Yeah, I, I feel like something similar. Curtain might be a bit too much. Maybe a, a proper warning <laughs> and really talk about it with like psychologists or something. Why didn't you wait for your leader? And I don't know why he's in the top 10. Maybe he cares about the top 10 in the Giro personally. Probably does. But you've got a person on your team that is in the Maglia Rossa and is dropping from the group. And it takes the man four minutes to go back to the back of the group Is that and then how long drop it took? to. T- <laughs> That's literally how long it took because Almeida was dropping earlier on. He dropped a bit, came back, dropped a bit, came back, and then he fully dropped. And not at a single point during that did Masnada look behind him and go back in that group. He was sitting next to Nibali in the group and he was looking forward. And it took until the gap to Almeida was a solid 50 meters before Masnada decided. Let me pull down to Almeida. But additionally, he didn't just go to Almeida and help him out. What he did was he waited and in the middle of the elite group and Almeida, he started pacing with someone else from another team while dropping. And it took another good 40 seconds before he was at Almeida's position to help out Almeida. And then two minutes later, we see that group and Almeida's pacing ahead of Masnada. Like, I don't get it. Why are you not Mas- helping your leader? I don't get it. Masnada today was a complete disgrace. Um, the way he rode in, just rode so selfishly. He didn't ride for Almeida at all, who is wearing the Maglia Rosa. And I know I know that he probably thinks, oh, well, I'm in top 10 or whatever, but that's kind of been what the team was saying to him. And he, the way I look, this is what I thought happened. He goes back. I don't think he's pulling maximum because if he's pulling maximum, how does he finish with the Armada group at the end? So he's not blown himself up on the last climb. He's not blown himself up on Stelvio pulling. He's not blown himself up in the in the plateau, in the valley, where the draft would have really helped Almeida before the last climb. So he's held something back for starters. Not just that. I'm not just making that up either because Almeida was pacing half the time. So after the Stelvio where Masnada gave some, oh, a little bit of assistance pacing and then we saw them arguing and Masnada throwing his hand up at Almeida who presumably said, hey, what the fuck are you doing? Then he went to the back of that group and it was Almeida pacing himself for like an hour and 20 minutes, not getting any help from Micah or Novak or Pernsteiner. So Almeida just chased the whole way on his own, no help from Masnada, and this is what I thought happened. I thought Masnada had a tantrum. He's gone off the back of the Almeida group, and it looked to me like he just rode about three to four metres behind that Almeida group on his own all the way to the finish, and that's borne out by what happened, that he was like that on Stelvio, he was like that in the base of the last climb, and at the finish he was three to four seconds behind them. So he rode completely for his own race and not for in, in support of Almeida at all. And if I was Quickstep, I would probably – I mean, I'm pretty – I'm a pretty – I'm a bit of a lunatic, so I wouldn't – I just cut him straight up. So um, – or <laughs> I'm not even sure you can do that legally, but you know what I mean. I would I would look down at this really, really seriously um, because He's going to have to be riding for Remco or Almeida next year. He ain't going to be riding for his own uh, ambitions, and he's out of contract after next year. So 
Yeah, I mean, am I being a bit? Let us know in the comments if I'm being a bit too harsh. I already know Benji's view. Benji doesn't think I'm being too harsh. The big ride of the day as well was Peo Bilbao, who got dropped, rode his own pace on the Stelvio. Very smart, by the way. That's if that's how to ride the Stelvio. If you're not in the front elite groups, ride your own pace early and drop yourself early if you're not feeling good or not feeling as fast as these top guys. And then obviously the Lacole jacket on the descent kept him in tip-top condition, kept him warm because he he rode the last climb the fastest of anybody, I think. He dropped full sang off the wheel. They went past Kelderman. So all the people, by the way, saying, why didn't Hindley go back and help Kelderman? Kelderman had people to pace him. He had Bill Bow and full sang. They went past him and he couldn't hold their wheel. They Pell Bow put another 90 seconds into him. So... Yeah, Bill Bow only finished 46 seconds behind Hindley and Gagenhart. Massive ride from him. He moves up to fourth on GC. So can't wait for stage 20 to Sestriere. I know we've gone on a long time at this stage. And also, full saying, he's gone from 12th to 6th, moving up to 359 back. Uh, so a big ride from him today. Um, but, yeah, Conrad and Mike are not looking too good in 7th and 10th. But stage 19 is a transitional stage tomorrow, 258Ks. Not sure I'll be watching the first half of this or even the first <laughs> 230 of it. If you want to skip a stage and just watch the last 15Ks, just, I mean, unless there's wind I don't know about, this could be one of them. Uh, from Morbenio to Asti, they go, like, across just about half of Italy. They, I think they go... Yeah, so like the north of, they go past Milan and, yeah, from Morbegno all the way to nearly to Turin. So just flat. It's the, there's no no categorised climbs. There's an intermediate sprint. There's a bonus seconds. There's a couple of rollers, but it's a flat finish. I don't know who I'm going to go with, Benji. According to Chad Hager, they just spent 6,000 kilojoules each stage in the last three days. I'm not, well, Demar, yeah, Demar. Do you think he'll have the snap? He should be the favourite on paper, but he might be a little bit cooked after the last few days. Yeah, he came in today at a solid 50 minutes of the first riders. It's 260 kilometres, though. The longest stage in this ground tour, if I recall correctly. Why? <laughs> Just why? It's a flat <laughs> stage. Come on. It's, gonna, it's, it's probably going to end later and we're going to see less of the Vuelta, so I don't like it. Um, but... Talking about it, I think that Krupama is going to try and control it. And despite it being a third week stage and that having a better chance of being for the breakaway, I just don't see it happening. Like, I don't know, 260 kilometers is such a long stage to control, though. So, oh my goodness, uh, even I'll fall asleep. I've never fallen asleep properly in a stage ever, but this one could actually do it. But I, I'm going to say the Mari the way. I think that Krupama has... Is one last opportunity to get fifth stage win, or is it his fourth? Uh, it'd be his fifth, I think. I think that Demar is going to take it, and I think that Grupama is going to control it, and that's again will come second in the sprint. So uh, a proper repetition of some of the sprints we already had, and therefore I think Demar is going to secure what we now know is still his Chiclamino jersey with a solid 37 gap right now once again so tomorrow's a decider for that but it's going to be really hard to ride Demar out of that first again so most likely Demar's taking home the Chiclamino jersey even though they both ended late today they're probably going to be hella tired but yeah I think they're going to try and get their last opportunity I'm going with again 
uh, just because it's such a long stage. If it was 150, 160Ks, I'd be all over the mar, but two city, whew, it's a long stage. It's been a long few days, and I just think Sagan, he doesn't, his sprint doesn't really seem affected in Grand Tours between the first stage and the last stage. In the, in the Tour, his sprint in the third week was quicker than the first week, so um, I think he'll be... I think it could be quicker and Damar would be, be pretty tight. But, yeah, an unbelievable – this was a classic stage at the Giro. I know we've chop, chopped and changed, gone around various things, but maybe one you should definitely watch the from the Stelvio onwards. Just a, It'll be an all-time classic. And, what a, yeah, congrats to the Giro organisers, RCS, for putting on this stage. And having the Stelvio, I never thought it would be possible, having the Stelvio today, uh, this late in the year, on the 22nd of October. And – it being free of snow with COVID and etc. So just yeah, I can't believe it, and I'm I was so happy to see it. But yeah, congrats to Jai Hindley taking the stage win, the young Australian. I'm very excited about these young Australian climbers. Moving on to stage three of the Vuelta, a lot less exciting. To be honest with you, uh, we thought this well, this happened exactly like we said in the preview. Uh, pretty much, like I don't think anything really changed because it was. Not really a hilly stage at all. There was a 17k 2% climb um, halfway through, but then it was pretty much flat. Other than that, it's 165k. It's not particularly long either, not at altitude. But the last climb of the day, it was a hilltop finish again, 6.5k's at 6.7%. But the final climb had a wall, as it always does in the Vuelta, had a wall in the last kilometre, and it looked like it got really steep in places too. So we said Roglic, we mentioned Gatapaz, Martin, etc. as contenders. We didn't think a breakaway would get enough license to go up the road. And when I, I wasn't really watching that closely, I'll be honest, Benji, <laughs> you're more diligent than me. But yeah, did a break even go up the road? A break went up the road, a break was caught, another break went up the road, and another break was caught. And I tuned in with about 15k to go. So. <laughs> so I can't blame you at all. So it's very similar on my end. Uh, throughout the stage it was 1k win point doesn't really matter for it since we now know already from the last few stages that the GC riders are fighting for that with Roglic being up there Kaz being up there and also I think it was I don't even remember I think it was Karapas who took the KOM jersey yesterday yes indeed because he was wearing that blue polka jersey today now for the stage we were saying I had I think mentioned Valverde and Martin in my picks yesterday I eventually went for Valverde because I felt like he could go for it. On Twitter, I posted Martin because, yeah, I am apparently very indecisive between the two. And what I do want to add is when we have, whenever we pick something on this podcast, it's very early after the last stage and it's a bit hard to get a direct prediction out. So if you want my accurate predictions... Most likely check them out on Twitter if a good two hours after the podcast because that's before when he, I release my feeds. Before he puts and, uh, them behind a paywall next year. No, 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 no. I'm not really planning that for now at least. <laughs> no, I don't know. I've got no such plans in the uh, in the running at the moment. Uh, the last climb of the day, obviously, like you said, was going to be the decider and we didn't expect the breakaway. That's also why we didn't really tune in before the last ascension. And because the Giro was way more entertaining for us. Now, this last climb, we had expectations of Movistar controlling that, I'd say, after yesterday. Because Movistar was a team that controlled the San Miguel climb yesterday and really punched it with Soler. Now, when this climb started, it directly 
after I turned in, we've got on the right of the road, Erviti standing with the bike of Soler. So my initial thought is, did Soler just change body or is he actually having a mechanical and Erviti gave his bike to Soler, which is the most likely answer, obviously. So Soler had a mechanical, lost a bit of a gap, never really got to the front very easily. And there was a team that tried to benefit out of that. I'm not sure that was the reason. Maybe they had a plan initially already, but Ineos was moving up and they were doing that with full force like they did just before the San Miguel climb yesterday for Richard Carapaz once again today. And another team that we don't see working as much on the climbs itself is Jumbo. They keep on pacing in the peloton with one or two riders throughout the stage to try and control the tempo and make sure it's a GC stage. But at the end of the stage, we never really see Jumbo do the work. And that's a real opposite effect of the Tour de France. And we've mentioned it on stage one, we mentioned it on stage two. Roglic is looking strong, but he looks like he misses a tiny bit. And once again today, I think we can add on to that once we go on to the final of today's stage. Ineos went to the front and started hammering it. And at that moment, at the back, one of the GC guys that is up there hasn't lost too much time yet. And that is Esteban Chavez had also a mechanical. And we saw a teammate that is a slight bit larger than him give him the bike. And yeah, Esteban Chavez had to not use the saddle then because the bike was a bit too large for him. He was able to sit on the saddle, but it wasn't really comfortable from what I could see. But Today, Esteban Chavez did lose quite a margin and ended on one minute and six seconds, but made a relative comeback since he passed so many people on his way back, basically half the peloton. Now, one of the Ineos nah, riders that was at the front... Did he make a mistake? Tell me. Yeah, Chavez, I've heard this uh, pretty directly. Chavez is the sort of guy, he'll just be like, if I have a domestique here, the domestique must pull. And they were not that far behind after the bike change from the back of the peloton and when when the pace is on like that you have to bridge across quickly because the people at the back are going to get dropped so there's nothing to really catch back onto so you're getting further and further away from the draft because even though you're gaining on those people well they're dropping so the gap is never really decreasing to the front group and he's sitting on the the domestique it's immediately clear this gap is not very far you can see them in the distance it's clear the domestique's going nowhere and he just had to at that moment be like uh, this is unfortunate, but to save time, it's going to cost me a chance at the stage win or a good position. I have to just sprint across this gap and go to the mac- maximum right now. Instead, he sits on the domestique, gap expands, and then he eventually has to pull once his domestique pulls off. So he done in the Vuelta of Burgos, he had the team working when it didn't make any sense at all. Um, so, yeah, I'm not going to give him actually too much credit today, uh, Esteban Chavez. But, yeah, I've got Yes, Froome time. About Froome, the thing is that we've seen some headlines after the last few days. Oh, Froome loses 30 minutes after the second stage. And uh, we saw another title that said, I think it was the BBC that said something along the lines of, oh my God, Ineos leaves Froome for dead in the first stage of La Vuelta. But he's obviously not Ineos's leader. And... He was hinting towards it before the first stage even. We saw it on the first stage, we saw it on the second stage, that it clearly was not going to happen. He was already 30 minutes behind this morning, but these headlines are still stupid. But I'm proud of him today, genuinely. I feel like he really delivered a good job for his leader today. 
he went to the front of the peloton, he started hammering it on one certain section, I think between eight and five kilometers on the climb today. It's not the steepest section of the climb yet, but at least he's doing something for his team. We've got the likes of Dumoulin, who after yesterday's stage, literally said in the interview that he's unsure about continuing the Vuelta because he's not sure he can do much for the team. That's BS. Like, he can hold on longer than Froome on stage one and two. He can help out Jumbo in some way. I totally disagree. And uh, he's a super honest person, Dumoulin, in interviews. But sometimes he sounds a bit... Yeah, he sounds like he's not having so much confidence in himself and he needs more confidence. I think his wife is a psychologist and they've been working on that quite a bit as well. But still, I would expect more and definitely from a person that won a Grand Tour in the past, have some damn confidence. You were not bad at the Tour de France per se. You were not at the level of the best people. But on this Vuelta, you can do something and... I've got the same thing with Pino. Pino didn't start today's stage. He just left the Vuelta, and I've got no real clue why he didn't crash. So it must have been that he did have a weak form and didn't really want it to play out like that and didn't really want to shame it. Sorry, what? They said his back was still sore, so he pulled out, which makes no sense because wouldn't he have been training hard enough to doing efforts, etc., and should have tweaked his back doing similar distances. So I... If that's the case that he started and his back still injured, like that's just a failure of the the team management, to be honest. Um, maybe they're just using it as an excuse and he's tired, etc. I'm not sure. But sorry, we should focus on what will happen in this finale. Ineos pulling, Amador pulls, Froome does a really good job, drops a fair few people. Then it was, I'm not, I can't remember if Brandon Rivera actually pulled, but it was definitely Ivan Sosa who was doing a very strong job. Sosa, stronger pull today than before. They're obviously setting Carapaz up. You noticed when Sosa was pulling three Ks to go on this mountain hilltop finish, Carapaz moved back in the group off Sosa's wheel because remember yesterday or on stage, no, stage one, Carapaz was on Sosa's wheel, Sosa pulling, and Koos was behind him and he got the jump on Carapaz. So that wasn't happening again today. And Carapaz had to close that down in stage one. So Carapaz moved on to Koos and Roglic wheel so they didn't attack him because Sosa's not setting such a high pace that it's actually putting those two Yumbo guys under pressure. I think Champoussin, Ajdual, Mondial rider went up the road. Kenny Elisande attacked and got a little bit of a gap with 2.4Ks to go. But it all came back together. And once again, like on stage one, it developed into a bit of a stalemate with Sosa pulled off, no more domestiques, and eventually, I think Groschartner was there looking pretty good. But eventually, it was Koos attacking once again. They used him as an attacker again on this climb. But he didn't really go full. At no stage, it seemed to be like testing attacks to me. I don't think he was really going that going full. Um, and eventually, they were sort of got to about 600 metres to go. They're all fanned out seven across the road. And no one... Roglic hasn't attacked at all. I thought there was, a, again, a couple of moments where Roglic could have done his signature attack from 500 to go or maybe when the first Coos attacks don't work. he Now, I want to make clear, when I said in the preview they should free Coos, use him to attack, I, I, I more mean in the pure mountain stages like Angloru where he should attack from like a third of the way into the climb um, where he's at actually at his best in a pure climbing scenario like that. I, I think Koos isn't as good, and we've never really seen in his career, an ability to attack, I think, from 800 or a K to go and beat the likes of Carapaz, etc. Um, 
So I think it would have been better for him to just set a moderate pace that's not tiring him like he did exactly the same on stage one and set up the Roglic counter. He didn't do that. Eventually, Vlasov was back today in looking in good form. He attacked, and he actually, I think, got pissed off that he got brought back by the GC guys because he's not a threat on GC. He's like, oh, he's five minutes behind. They brought him back because it was so close to the line. Carapaz is bringing moves back. Roglic is marking Carapaz. And eventually, with 220 to go, Dan Martin, the man you had gave three Bisons, Benji, he attacked and... It's tough to say. He, he definitely way quicker than Carapaz, better than Carapaz. Roglic just seemed to be more concerned about marking Carapaz and not actually fully sprinting for the line. He didn't get in the drops like he normally does. He didn't look like he was going maximum either. Maybe I'm being, I'm not seeing it, but yeah, Dan Martin wins the stage ahead of Roglic second who was ahead of Carapaz third. They're all in the same time. A lovely stage win from Dan Martin, who I think we said in the preview podcast would be taking a stage out. He's certainly in my Velo Games team. He gets the bonus seconds. Roglic takes more bonus seconds ahead of Carapaz. I feel like Roglic was more concerned about taking some bonus seconds out of Carapaz today, to be honest. Walpole's fourth, four seconds behind those three. Vlasov fifth, seven seconds behind. Mars sixth, nine seconds behind. Groshart, Nakus, Carthy, 12 back, and Champoussin, a lovely performance from him with that attack late 10th. And Soler lost 45 seconds today, Benji. I think that is a problem for Movistar because he's not really going to be able to be second fiddle. He's already two minutes back on stage three, so that's a shame for him. Dumoulin lost 11 minutes today, 12 minutes. So if he's going to do that, he may, he may as well not start tomorrow. Um like, that's pointless in being here. Froome is doing a job. I was really impressed by Froome today. Froome's still better than, like, 50% of the people in the peloton, on at least, on a climb like this. He's dropping dropping a lot of people. So um, he's doing a job. I'm really, yeah, impressed by Froome. And, uh, yeah, hats off to him. GC, Roglic, five seconds out of Martin. Carapaz still third. 13 seconds behind Roglic, Mars, Carthy, Kuz, Groshart, and move up because Esteban Chavez, the big loser for today, moving from fourth to eighth because of that mechanical now 90 seconds behind Primoz Roglic. Do you think, Benji, it was just Martin was the strongest today? Did you What did you see from from Roglic? Because this was a stage I thought he like was made in a factory for him to win. <laughs> That's a perfect metaphor, but... I think Roglic in the Tour de France would win this stage, at least the form of the Tour de France. I don't think Roglic is at the form of his Tour de France. We've seen him deliver it on the descent on stage one, basically because it felt to me that he reconned the finish better than other people and has that solid punch and didn't do it on the climb, did it on the descent just after the top. So in stage one, he did it on that descent. And that showed me that he didn't have it for the climb itself, and he kept himself at the back on the climb itself. But considering it's one stage, it was too little to look into. On the stage yesterday, with the attacks at the top, he was on a few meters at the top. You said that it's too little to look into, but that's two occasions already. And today he's leaving a stage that is factory made for him, just out of the question. But we also got to credit Dan Martin here because it's not because Roglic is out of form that Martin is winning this. It's because Martin is looking really good. And Roglic isn't really out of form. He's just a tiny bit less than he should be for me. And I think that's oh, going to cost him on the larger climbs. 
Yeah. I want to make clear. I don't, I don't think like Roglic got to the last 100 metres and he's like, oh, I'll just give the win to Dan Martin. No, 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 no. I think once it got to the last 150, Dan Martin's kick was too strong. This is a guy that's won Liège, best on Liège, and uh, he's, he definitely like he's comes podium flesh like probably five times. I haven't checked his Palmares exactly. He's really, really good puncher, Dan Martin, and he looks to be in good form with his Vuelta. And I think the way Roglic rode this last 400, 500 meant that Martin was kind of fresh, full punch last 200, and it's just impossible to come around him. And he took a nice inside line, and, yeah, Roglic couldn't really gain on him, and he had to come around Carapaz too. Whereas I like Roglic when he counters in, like, the last 500 or 600, no one, no one can hold that. Um, we saw that in Dauphiné, Tour de Lain. Maybe and you may be right, Benji. Maybe he doesn't doesn't have that that punch right now. But we're being hypercritical. Let's be honest. He's yep, he's in red three days in a row. He's, and he's come second. Game. Yeah. So it's we're just nitpicking um, because we've got to talk about something. But hats off to Dan Martin. And interesting, you know, Mars losing time. Vlasov looking good going into tomorrow's stage. It's not going to be any more GC action. It's for the sprint men. It's to Eyeja de los, los Caballeros, 191Ks, no categorized climbs for the sprinters. One intermediate sprint, pretty close to the line, actually, 23Ks from the line. And uh, I'm sticking with my preview pick, which was Sam Bennett. I think I also set Sam Bennett, and I think it's hard to counter that, really. I don't really have a name that I'd say would fit better on that stage. We can always be surprised by Bennett's form because we don't know what his current form is compared to his previous races at the Tour de France. So that's where my doubt lies. But I still think that Bennett's going to be... Or should I go patriotic? Mm. I want to say Philipson, but I'm going to give Bennett to you, and I'll, I'll say Philipson in a somewhat biased pick for this stage, because why not? It's one of the only stages that he probably has a chance, because his Grand Tour doesn't have too much when it comes to proper flat stages. Philipson can get over a small hill, but he can't get over a proper hill. So he's got to have it in these stages, I think, in this Vuelta, because, yeah, we don't have too many. Okay. Anyway, I think that's roughly it for oh, the Vuelta. Right? Oh. We don't normally give betting advice, but let's on that point about Philipson, if there's a head-to-head market between Ackerman and Philipson and they're both two, two euro each odds, I'm taking Philipson. Every time. This is not financial advice, by the way. I just want to put that in for uh, legal Fuck reasons. Same as Benji. <laughs> <laughs> oh, do you not agree with that pick? I wanted you. Do you agree with that pick or not? Oh, you're staying silent. Okay, whatever. I'm staying silent. <laughs> I okay. agree with your pick, though. Uh, because yeah, if I say Philipson for the for the stage, then I have to agree with the pick as well. Yeah, because yeah, he's got like to be Dani Martinez to do it. GC pick. Ah, oh, fuck off. He crashed. <laughs> All right, that's enough for today. This was I clearly our said Dan Martin, but I just added a few more letters. <laughs> <laughs> this was our Giro d'Italia Stage 18 and Vuelta Spanish Stage 3 recap, a magic day of cycling, particularly the Giro d'Italia, an unbelievable stage. Brought to you by Lacole. Once again, Lacole Kit getting on that podium on the stage for the Giro d'Italia. Before we sign off, make sure you tweet at Benji or comment down below on the YouTube video. Make sure to check in with him, see if he's okay after Vincenzo Nibli lost four minutes on the Stelvio stage in week three because I'm a little bit worried about worried about him. So make sure you, you tweet at Benji and say, what happened with Nibli today? Are you going? 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 